me tell you what it is, okay? It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? Yeah, I suppose Sandra Bullock is Miss Ethnicity, right? Well, no, all I'm saying is that the Hunter General is historical for excluding African-American elements. Well, look how you get your PhD in black cinema, sister soldier. Welcome to Afro Horror. This is our first episode. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Courtney Martin. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Sharday Sellers. Yes. In our first episode, we are doing it straight to the top. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Deep Blue Sea with screenwriter Wayne Powers. Hello, Wayne. It's a privilege to be part of your first episode. Yes, we're so excited. Um, As you well, the listeners don't know, but you know, Wayne. Wayne came to my birthday party last year. It was a Deep Blue Sea-themed birthday party because I'm obsessed with this movie. Uh, The way Wayne and I connected is I tracked him down and I reached out and I said, I'm a huge Deep Blue Sea fan. I would love to just talk to you, I think, is what I said. Yeah, you said said that. I was a little bit worried. It was a misery kind of situation. (laughs) It was. Because what kind of email comes out of the blue? Like, who's a huge Deep Blue Sea fan? Me. And anyway, I tracked you down. You met me for lunch at Monsieur Marcel's and you were just the loveliest. You let me like fangirl out to you for an hour about mm-hmm. the movie and you gave me so many good tidbits that when we decided to do this podcast, I was like, he's got to be our first guest at uh, 20th anniversary coming up. I want everyone to know everything that I know about how amazing the script is and the movie. And so Wayne, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here. We're also joined by our wonderful Afro horror team. We've got Kristen, our intern. Hi, Kristen. Hi. <laughs> and then we have Larika. She's assisting us for the day. Hello. Hello. How are you, ladies? Yeah, they're good. <laughs> they're good. They're on the couch. They're here to cheer us on at our first episode. Um, Larika, uh, tell me your at handle because you're a content creator. I am. Um, it is at L-A-W underscore R-E-C-A. That is a, at L-A-W <laughs> underscore R-E-C-A. R-E-C-A. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's your name. La Rica. Okay. <laughs> and is that on all platforms? It is on all platforms. Instagram, Twitter. YouTube. YouTube. TikTok. Cool. TikTok. Oh, TikTok. Yeah. And we're, we're not going to give away sweet Kristen's unless you want us to. Do you want us to give away your IG? You want to plug? Yeah? No, she's saying no. Which is only because <laughs> Kristen runs our social media. She's here for the summer. Uh, she's a student at Drexel Film School uh, based in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I want to say Of Pittsburgh. which I am a proud alum. Yes, Chris is from Drexel. And she she actually recommended Kristen to me. And she's been amazing. She's been doing our social media. So if you guys are going to send us any hate mail, she's going to read it. Please don't do that to her. She's so sweet. We don't want her to like fall apart and quit because you guys are hateful. If you don't like something you hear on the show, it's just easy to turn it off. Um, anyway, back to Deep Blue Sea. Okay, so I've got some facts here, Wayne. Just I want to briefly go over some facts that I found. Uh, Deep, Deep Blue Sea was released on July 28th, 1999. So this podcast is airing on the 24th. That's a few days before your 20th anniversary. So we're super excited about that. Um, it has a runtime of uh, uh, 105. I was young when I wrote it. Well, you're still young. I can't believe it's 20 years. 20 years, right? How old was I 20 years ago? I was... You want to play that game? I was I was seven. <laughs> I was nine. 
that, that's what my girlfriend does. I, I tell her about something. She goes, uh, I wasn't born by then. <laughs> oh, you're like, oh, whoops. How old are you? <laughs> um, well, here's here's something. Kristen wasn't even born 20 years ago. So that should make you feel old. Your movie came out and she wasn't even, she was just in her mommy's tummy. I was at least nine years old. Um, and I or, or 10, July. No, I was turning 10. I was turning 10. Um, but it was distributed by Warner Brothers. It had a budget of 82 million, but you made 164 million dollars. Amazing. Um, director was Rennie Harlan, writer you. Um, cinematographer Stephen F. Winden, edited by, and this I thought was interesting, it had three editors credited. I don't know if you can talk about that. Rennie likes to work with a lot of cameras and drives editors. Uh, mad, but basically they have to stock that many editors because he's got so many cameras running at the same time. What? Oh, that's crazy. I was wondering about that because we have a Frank J. Orusti, Derek Burchin, and Dallas Puitt. And they're all credited editors and that's very that's very different. So it's because of the cameras. Yeah, and, and I think because uh, I think the editors all had meltdowns. It <laughs> <laughs> oh. was so much material. No, I'm, I'm just joking. No, all right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he uses a lot of cameras. How many did you say? Three? Four? Oh, no, it would be at least five. Stop. Five and, and cameras? And for some of the stuff, there'd be a lot more. He gets in, Rennie gets incredible coverage on these scenes, and, uh, and it belies the budget because I think it looks more expensive than, than it was. Yeah. And uh, part of the trick of doing that is to have a lot of cameras going, and, um, and plus that makes it, when you're editing, it makes it easier because movements are in sync and such you got everything yeah at this that yeah it's actually true i was watching it just i mean i watched all the time it's it was on netflix for a long time it made it easy um and then they took it off so i eventually was like why am i i should just own it so i bought it but i rewatched. it i got a quarter thank you very much (laughs) yeah you did okay good i paid for some coffee or something for you um i rewatched it and i was like this film holds up it just cinematically looks gorgeous 20 years later like so a lot of like jaws you watch jaws you're like oh that is that's some old stuff hand puppet yeah but i mean even the cgi even the sharks they look great um, and I want, we're going to get into more about the sharks later. Cause you told me some really cool tidbits about the sharks, but we're celebrating Afro horror. You guys We're we're celebrating black, uh, characters in, in horror genre. And so today we're going to be talking more so about Samuel Jackson, who played Russell Frank and LO Cool J who played preacher in this film. And, um, we have a segment later on called time of death. Uh, every episode will give you the exact time of death of when the black person dies in the horror film. This one only had one. And we're going to go into more about that later. But first, Wayne, I want to, can you give us an overview, like how Deep Blue Sea fell into your lap? Yeah, so what happened was this was just before a Christmas break. The history of Deep Blue Sea was a guy named Duncan Kennedy wrote a spec script. And they bought it for quite a bit of money. And then um, subsequent writers were brought in to do rewrites. But they were not, the studio was not happy. In the meantime, they had to do a pay, essentially with an actor, pay a play is we're going to tell the actor, we're going to pay you no matter whether we do the movie or not. Well, they essentially had to pay a play with the sharks because the sharks took months to make, mm. put together, and it cost a lot of, lot of money. And so what they had to do before they spent that money is they had to decide, do they, you know, are they really going to make this movie? And uh, so what they, I was brought in, and this was, like I said, right before Christmas, and um, the deal sort of almost fell through, but then it didn't. 
And um, then we basically had over the Christmas break to finish a first draft of a script that they would then, with that draft aside, are they going to commit <gasps> to the Sharks? That's a lot of pressure for you. Yeah, it was a lot of, it was, the vacation was completely, Ruined. totally full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they, luckily, they really liked the script and they greenlit the script. That's amazing. How long after the, the script was greenlit that it went into production? Not long. I can't remember. Yeah, but not long after. So they were really gung-ho about this. Yeah, we just started doing um, more drafts, of course. So what happened with Samuel Jackson, we knew that Samuel Jackson was going to have a part in the movie. Mm-hmm. He'd worked with Rennie before. And Rennie, they had decided they were always going to work together on any film that they did. Yeah. And uh, so when the movie came up, we knew Samuel Jackson would be in it. But because of time constraints and budget restraints, it would have to be a smaller role. So at first, the role of Preacher was going to be played by Samuel Jackson. Whoa. So um, Samuel Jackson's people read the script, and they liked the script, but they felt that Samuel Jackson was too small a role. Hmm. He, he wasn't like a leader or anything like that. So we decided to make the role of the leader to be uh, Samuel Jackson. And uh, that role he was happy with, and I was happy with it too, because you're talking probably about not having uh, stereotypical characters colors of uh, Pearson's people of color and um, you know to have it be the the multi-millionaire leader of these expeditions and explorer and adventurer not only was attractive to actors but was very attractive to Samuel Jackson and I will argue because he did this movie it probably I'm just gonna say it gave him more leeway to be Nick Fury. I think Marvel probably watched Deep Blue Sea and was like, oh, he could totally lead the Avengers for sure. <laughs> I'm just going to give you all the credit because of that character. No, because you're right, because stereotypically during that time, we're talking um, 1999. Yeah. Like the roles for black men like that did not exist, especially in a role in a movie like this where it's sci-fi, first of all. And second of all, it's it's not tied to his blackness. He's just a businessman right. who's leading this group. It's it's not like it has anything to do with his struggle as a black man. That's very rare. Well, that's important to me. I've been doing that in uh, TV shows and movies where it doesn't become a big deal that a person is black. It just becomes, he just is. And so I remember being on TV series and they would often, one particular series in, in the pilot, they've all white people. And then you start to write episodes and realize, well, this is stupid that they did this, but that's before he came on. So we, what we do is try to make everybody, you know, whether it's an accountant or any of those type of roles. So like, um, I remember we gave the first role that Cuba Gooding Jr. ever had. And I should say that he ever had where his character was not a gangster. Right, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy with that. And I still try to, today, you know, make a, I just made a small independent movie, Loves Me, Loves Me Not, coming soon. Yeah. And uh, I made a point of having people of color, you know, populate it and, and other minorities. And uh, it makes for a more interesting film, I think. Yeah, and I what Agree. I love about Deep Blue Sea also was L Cool J. Was this his feature debut? It was. And uh, he always, I've met him probably three times since, not very often. But when you do meet him, he sort of says, he goes, you, you started it off for me. He's really, really sweet about it. And uh, very generous in his in his praise. Yeah, because look at what he's doing now. He's NCIS LA. Yeah. He's all over the place. Movies, TV. I wasn't surprised at all. 
he was very dedicated. He took it very seriously. He's a very, when I knew him at least, he was very religious. And um, just you could tell that he was going to break out into whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, he um, he's very good in this film. I remember I rewatched it again. I mean, I've, I watch it all the time, like I said. But rewatching it again, just looking at him specifically, I was like, he's very good for this to be his first feature film. Like, not even like prosthetizing or whatever. He's just a real natural actor. Um, and I really enjoy him in this film. I We had this conversation, but we're going to, Everyone else hasn't heard it yet. Was he always supposed to live at the end of the film? Yes. Oh, okay. At the end of the film, three people were supposed to live. And that was the scientist and uh, Preacher and Thomas Jane's character. Now, all through the writing of it, I would argue that she needed to die. Yeah. Because she was basically, the, she created the Frankenstein monster, monster. Yeah, she genetically modified their brain, right? Which is a no-no. Right. And, um, you know, it's important that that character had a very good motive for it. And so it's not in any way evil. But, so what happened was they shot the film. They, we showed it a test screening. And it was almost unanimous that they thought that she should die. In fact, there was a piece of paper, you know, they, they have you fill these little forms. And one of them across it was scrawled across it, the bitch must die. <laughs> so they shot it with her dying. And I think one day they just, uh, there was only a few shots they had to replace and, and replace some of the special effects. So that's that's how she ended up living. But I always felt that Alan Kuja should die. I mean, should live. Oh, I was like, wait, what? Not Uncle L. <laughs> You're just so, so crazy of him. <laughs> yeah, he, and it's great that he lives. He also represented this sort of working class, blue collar, uh, you know, he's a chef, so I guess it might be above working class, but he represented sort of the people, like, originally when I got the script, there were, it, they had a bunch of military people that were coming in to kill the sharks sharpshooters, they had all sorts of weapons, things like that. They were not working class, regular people. And so the first thing when I met with Warner Brothers to discuss how I would change it, the first thing I said was, I think it should be populated with someone like, I, I pitched the idea of a chef who ends up swimming into his own oven and then the shark hits the um, heater yeah, the button. Glass, the which glass is a great room. sequence. Iconic. That was the first thing that that I pitched to them. But the, the part of the point of it was not that I was pitching a cool action thing, but that it was the character. That That's what really interested Warner Brothers, with that character, and it was very cool visual instinct. In fact, when I'm offered a project, if I can't think of three really good images, then it may not be the project for me. That doesn't you know, preclude action movie. It doesn't mean it has to be an action movie or action sequences. Uh, just an image that really sticks with me. Yeah. And that was one of the first, I woke up and I had that image. Yeah. And I love the line, chef dies in his own oven. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly how I pitched it. Yeah. And see, that's also a good lesson. If anyone listening is a screenwriter um, or a producer, that, it's important for a pitch, right? That's the stuff studios want to hear. They want to hear those, those scenes that are like, oh, yeah, I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to be positive because they don't want to feel like you're going to throw everything out necessarily. If they do feel that, they're tailored that right from the beginning. But it's also important to come up with your own own stuff and try to just concentrate on character. Yeah. 
And what I love about, um, there's a great scene with Samuel L. Jackson and LL Cool J where they're kind of acknowledging that they're both black. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, we don't, we don't do that. Like he's the Samuel has, first of all, he survived a giant avalanche, right? Yes, his backstory was he survived an avalanche. Yeah, and, and he has this, later on he has this whole monologue about how the avalanche actually didn't kill everyone. It was because they turned on each other. But I love that scene with Samuel and um, LL because LL kind of goes like, we're not supposed to be on mountains. We're not even supposed to be here. <laughs> like, and it just, it's a really nice, it's one of the few scenes they share together, right? That's That was one yeah. of the last ones before, you know, Samuel bit it, literally. Or someone bit or Samuel. He got bit. Yes. <laughs> Which I want to know, is that or in the original script? Like, where did that idea come from? Well, the idea was that he would give a big Newt Rockney speech, which is a uh, coach for Notre Dame football, and that would inspire everybody. And then the twist would be that he gets eaten, and therefore, what are they going to do from then on? Their their leader is dead. And uh, so wrote the, wrote the dialogue, and then Akiv Gozman, who's the producer on the movie, uh, and he stayed in Mexico the whole time. I was only there a little bit, and he amped it up. He came up with the ice thing and stuff and when i first saw it i didn't like it at all yeah. i thought this is this is so over the top and i realized now the genius of it which is that the audience is hearing the story and the audience is almost thinking to myself oh my this is so stupid and so over the top i should say not stupid and then when they're completely surprised then when he gets snatched up by the shark so it was always there but he just uh, milked it a little bit more yeah, that's and it was brilliant because you're right. You're like, that's the biggest star in the movie. So what else is supposed to happen? Which we will talk about Halloween Resurrection uh, in future episodes. But there, I mean, at the beginning of that movie, you know, Laurie Strode dies. And it kind of is just like, okay, so what are we? And she dies in the first 10 minutes, though. This one, Samuel made it, um, I think I have the time of death here. We'll just go into our time of death segment. And I, I really made sure I paused on the right, you know, moment to get this. So time of death for Samuel Jackson's character is an hour and 12 seconds. But there's still a good hour of film left after that. So that's brilliant. Yeah, if you look at its structure for a screenplay, I feel like I always think about what is what happens at the hour mark. Because mm-hmm. your first act break, I think the first act break was when Down Scars Guard gets oh, bit yeah. because that's the story you know first the story is about they're trying to f- find this cure and everybody's there to celebrate it and to make it work and it's going to work and then everything goes to shit when the shark jumps back out and bites him. and i think that's a very good sequence no that really that's did. a great it's a brilliant sequence um i want to talk go back to the sharks how many sharks did they make i don't remember i think one or two right they had at least maybe two at least at least because the shark during that scene where she's, you know, putting the serum in their brain, that's a that's a mechanical shark. Yes. That's not CGI. No. It looks it looks flawless. Yeah. I'm sure they're expensive. A good fun thing with the sharks was I was able to ride on one of them. <laughs> in the water? In the water. What? In the water tank. How was, were they really big? Yeah, they were really big. And it was like uh it was this as if I was being um put along by what do they call it? Um Dolphins? Uh-oh. You know, when you're... Oh, ski. Jet ski, yeah. A jet ski. Felt like you're... It, in a water it moves? School. It moves. How? Like remotely? Yeah. What? This is like... Like I said, they were expensive. That's why they had to commit to... If they're going to commit to the sharks, they need to commit to the movie. And um, just so you all know, or maybe you don't know, but I know this, they have a Deep Blue Sea 2 that came out 
last year, straight to DVD or video, whatever you want to call it. Um, and Wayne, you mentioned because the, they still use, hey, had the sharks and they maybe just had to use yeah, them. I don't know that much of the movie because I never saw it, but yeah, whereas they basically had the sharks in storage and a couple times I had heard they're going to, you know, add to do a sequel to it because they had the sharks. Yeah, they still have the sharks and they look good. Um, we'll say DBC2, not my favorite. Um, literally a, a remake of the first one. Everything happens the same. I told you about this. Um, but the sharks look great. They're, they're still, you know, 20 years as they age like wine. They look wonderful. <laughs> Botox. Yeah, it's the Botox. So for me, um, this film was shot in Mexico, right? Yes. The Aquatica. Did you build all that? Like, I'm so curious about this set piece. Well, they they couldn't, what uh, Rennie says, they couldn't have made the movie if not for Titanic because this, it was on the set of Titanic. They did that. And the great thing about being on Titanic set is that you could have water rise and fall sort of at will. And uh, so that's what they that's what they did. And all this stuff was built. It was a very, you know, I, I like to uh, direct things that I write there's no way I would have been able to have wanted to direct that because it was a massive undertaking with, you know, ready to be looking at blueprints and all that kind of stuff. So that whole walkway around the water, that was built? That was built. That is insane. It, it looks gorgeous. And then the laboratory itself is beautiful with the glass that's behind. Now, the glass, that was green screen, right? Obviously. There's no yes. water behind the glass. I was like, I was like, that's expensive. Um, yeah, the set. That's my favorite thing about rewatching this film is that the set design is so specific and it's gorgeous and it really like that should be a place, right? There should be an aqua aquatica where there's three levels underwater. Yeah, the idea was that it was going to be a like a World War II landing thing or something like that. Yeah, that was then updated, of course, with all the brand new equipment. So he really liked the juxtaposition of having something seem old and worn in some ways and ultra modern in others. Yeah, and did you ever see The Meg? Yes. Yeah, so The Meg did it. They made it there super ultra modern, but I still think Aquatica was better than whatever The Meg. No offense to The Meg, but they just it, it's just not on par with Aquatica. You seen The Meg, Chris? I have not seen The Meg. I'm aware of it. It's on HBO. You can borrow my streaming password. <laughs> I saw Crawl yesterday. You saw Crawl? I'm seeing it tomorrow, so no spoilers, but yes. No? No, I thought it was it definitely delivered the goods. It was like a lower budget. Yeah. Low, low, but lower budget. And uh, you know, what's tricky about those films is, is trying to keep enough melodrama so that you understand relationships and care about people, um, but yet not using too much to slow down the movie because what often happened in that movie was that right when they were basically a father and son story, a father and daughter story. Right, right. And right as they're sort of doing this incredible thing, will they escape, they sort of say, but what did I tell you when you were a child? And, you know, stuff like that. So it's very hard to, to do that. Yeah. But it was effective as far as the, uh, it had cool and alligator, it's funny, chocolate Right. It's funny you bring that up because your heyday, 1999, first of all, which is, I, I uh, it's known to be one of the best years of cinematic history like yeah you don't know that people talk about 1999 in films like that's the year well we thought we were all gonna die so we just <laughs> that's true put we all can point to the, the box table. office but i I'm, I'm glad crawl is coming out and i'm glad uh 47 meters down two is coming out because i miss creature features and that's what i love about deep blue sea we don't get get a lot of creature features anymore but they're making a comeback and i'm so excited would you ever do a movie like this again absolutely yeah 
it was fun, right? It was fun. Now, um, I tell you this all the time, and I'm going to get a lot of hate from the listeners. I don't care. But I tell you this in person. I still think shark movies, Deep Lucy beats Jaws. Uh, yeah. You think? Okay. Yeah. I okay. mean, honestly, just having people that look like me, that gives it like five extra points. Yeah. But it also is a more original story. Beautiful set pieces. I there's there's a list out there that you know has Deep Blue Sea at number two, and I was like that list is wrong. Mm, it's definitely number list one. Is racist. No, <laughs> <laughs> it, because and it's like you were saying, Wayne. It's the emphasis on character that I like. Everyone had such layer. Like Thomas Jane's character is a criminal, right? Like right. he's all had backstories. Yeah, all had backstories, and he's doing this job because, like he said, uh, I keep my nose down. I don't ask questions because I can't afford to ask questions. I'm a criminal. I'm on probation, all of that. Um, Samuel has this secret where it's like, no, it wasn't the snow that killed everyone. People turn on each other, which I secretly think Samuel was the one that turned. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was the thing. That's why he had such a gravitas to him because he's like, I've killed some motherfuckers. So <laughs> like, um, Preacher just being, you know, this sweet, docile, but he's, he's a badass in this too. He lights a shark on fire. He, he does a little Jaws-esque, which is at the end, you know, there is your Jaws-esque. You do blow up the shark. That seems to be the most effective way to kill a killer shark. Yeah, how else would you kill it? Yeah, well, also, we didn't want to ignore the fact that Jaws existed. Right. So there are a couple things that subtly there's like um, the license plate that comes off. Yeah, the, the new shark, right? That came the, the, new, the license plate comes out of the new shark. Uh, it's the same license plate they used in Jaws when they were doing the Aww, autopsy. That's nice. So, um, a little tip of the hat to Jaws. Yeah, that's sweet. Oh, well, at least there's no like subtle shade there. I still think uh, DBS, as I call it, is is way ahead. I know there's some Jaws stands out there, and they're gonna be like, "What kind of horror podcast is this? How dare she say <laughs> Jaws is number one?" But for me, my list, and I want to hear yours, Chris, is Deep Blue Sea. Then it's Jaws, and then I'm not gonna lie, I really, really enjoyed 47 meters down. It like shot up to the, the top of my list. Um, mine is Deep Blue Sea, Deep Blue Sea, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea, because I really, I don't really fuck with other shark movies like that. I mean, you even see the Shallows. Shallows is okay. You like um, Open Water. Yeah, Open Water was good. I like Open Water two better than Open Water, but um, I think Open Water two would be my number four because I definitely. Did you see 47 Meters Down, Wayne? No. you got to see it. The sequel's coming out. I don't know how good that's going to be. That was the Mandy Moore one, right? Yeah, the Mandy Sisters. Moore. I, yeah, that one I enjoyed. I don't know if I have the highest hopes for the sequel, but, you know. I mean, yeah, it can't be worse than the Deep Blue Sea sequel, honestly. That went straight. And I own it. You know, I, Wayne asked me, why did you buy it? Because they were charging $5 to rent it or charge $5 to buy it. And I was like, I'm not going to just spend five. I'm just going to buy it. Like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense. So now I'm a proud owner of all the Deep Blue Sea franchises. That's another quarter. Every time, <laughs> oh, you get that? Okay, every time cool. someone, um, no, I, I had nothing to do with Deep Blue Sea 2, but because um, because the sequel to something that I did right, you get residuals. Yeah, there you go. Um, I bought you another coffee. Yay for me. So everyone else go out and buy a. Uh, Deep Sea 1 and 2 and Feed Wayne. <laughs> There's also a Japanese novel version of Deep Blue Sea. What? That also got me a residual. And, uh, of course, I don't know what it says. Right. It's like, all in Japanese. What's, well, what do you, okay, 20 years, we've seen a lot of um, remakes happen. You know, Chucky just had their remake come out. Halloween's still, I think, it's a it's technically a remake. It's not an extension. What do you think about a Deep Blue Sea remake? No? I'm not sure how you would do it. 
that wouldn't be a retread of what's already been done in it. It literally would be a shot for shot remake, but just with new younger people. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no, yeah, there's no other way to make it. I really think the story is perfect. I don't think you can change it. Um, if you had to remake it now, though, is there someone particular that you would cast differently? One thing I'm really impressed with is that Rennie put together a cast that was almost like from an independent movie. You know, Stellan Skarsgård is just an incredible international actor. And um, just everyone that was put together, I thought was really good and not uh, cliche to whatever role they were, were playing. So I don't think I would mess with the, um, with the casting at all. What I would do is I would have it be updated with the effects. Yeah. I think that the mechanical shark effects were great. Yeah. But some of the other effects when the sharks are like chomping under the water, yeah, you know, they they don't they don't hold up. Which yeah. Is, which at the time they did. I see yeah, the Samuel when he gets <laughs> It's my favorite gift to use on Twitter because you see his like legs kick up in the air <laughs> as the sharks take you in the water and you're like, This yeah. is not great. Yeah, you can't you can't improve upon that. But I think that I would uh spend more more on the effect. When the movie was in its final phases and they had the test screening. Some people complained about the effects. So um, Warner Bros. knew they had a good movie going. So they had ILM, which is George Lucas's company, of course, Whoa. come in and, and, and at great expense and do the final uh, run on it. And it made a huge difference. Yeah, if it's good enough for Star Wars, it's definitely good enough for, for Deep Blue Sea. You know what I enjoy about this film, too, is also it. it um, I don't know if this was one of the first or if it was just going with the trend of rappers having a theme soundtrack. Yes. Deepest, bluest. I love that song. It's, it's, it's a really good song. It's really good. And uh, I looked at the lyrics yesterday and he's saying, deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. What does that mean, LL? I think maybe it was head, I thought. Is my head is like a shark? I thought it was hat. For some reason, I keep thinking it's Head hat. makes a little more sense. His head is like a, a shark fin? It's <laughs> well, he did always wear the hat. Well, I mean, I mean, hat. How would that work? I don't know. I don't know. We, we got to LL him. to <laughs> season two. You should look it up on the internet. I would imagine that. Um, Kristen, uh, intern, look up, look up the lyrics to "Deepest Bluest." <laughs> Google powers activate. Yeah, because uh, I, I, it's a great song, though. The way to end the the movie, and that was the thing. Like, Busta didn't have a song at the end of Halloween Resurrection, did he? No, but he should, he should have. have. Yeah, criminally misunderused. If you're gonna have a singer slash actor, you should use her song. Oh, she's got something for us. It's hat. My hat is like a shark. Oh, yeah. oh, do I win a prize? Deepest bluest. My hat is like a shark's fin. I I need ex. We're gonna tweet LL. Everyone tweet LL at him, <laughs> at him and say, what does that mean, sir? Your hat is like a shark's fin. Is it pointy? Is it a fedora? <laughs> no, I mean, you remember, he used to wear the Kangals and stuff all the time. So maybe it's like you see him coming when he's got the hat on. <gasps> oh, okay. Oh, you're smart. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking way too literally. I'm like, it's got to be finned. It's got to it's I'm bullshitting hat. is what I am. I have no idea. <laughs> um, everyone, seriously, though, at LL, Cool J, and uh, ask him, what what does that mean? And also thank him just thank for him. being so friggin' awesome in this movie. I have an LL story. And t- I- tell him that I said hi. Yes, Wayne says hi. I have an LL story. I don't know if I told you this one, Wayne. Chris, I never told you this. I used to do background work when I first moved to LA. And one of the shows I did for a couple episodes was NCIS LA. And I showed up to set, and I remember LL showed up too. 
Obviously, he's on the show. <laughs> um, but he was there, and he we were all standing in this, like, restaurant. I was a waitress, you know? And it was me and 10 other extras and a whole bunch of crew people. And he went around to every last one of us, shook our hand, looked us in the eye, and said, Hi, I'm LL. What's your name? And he got to me, and I was like, I'm Shardy. <laughs> he's like, Hi, Shardy. Thanks for coming. He did that to everyone. It took him a good 10 minutes to get around to all the crew and the cast. And I was like, this guy is dope. Like, who does that? And and then I, the crew member, someone turned to me and he's like, he does this every morning. This wow. He does this every morning. He says hello to everybody. I'm not surprised at all to hear that. And also, um, one thing that was interesting about the movie was that the majority of the actors hadn't been in a movie of this kind of scope before. Uh, you know, Stellan had been in a lot of stuff. Obviously, Samuel Jackson had done everything. But they were also happy to be on this huge set with this huge budget and like you said huge production design although the movie was miserable to make actually technically because the water was not heated it was the pacific ocean going into the those tanks and all the time they were wet um, and uncomfortable and they were in these tiny cramped spaces with hundreds of crew members and it was just a, a challenge i mean i we knew when writing it that it was going to be tough on the actors. I mean, it kind of makes for the performance, though, right? To be that miserable, you could definitely tell. It was very easy for them to act scared because there were people off screen throwing down pieces of wood that were on fire on them and various various things. And also the sharks weighed a lot and they uh, had a lot of force to them. So you had to be real careful not to crush somebody. That'd be so, especially for Thomas Jane, who had to interact with the sharks the most, I'd be terrified. Just, I know it's fake, but to see it, like, up close. Yeah. And you said they're huge. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I don't know if I could do that. Good good thing. Thomas Jane is also, uh, he's an action star now, too, right? What is he? Punisher. He did the Punisher. True. Yeah. yeah. So th now, yeah, you started him off. There yeah, you go. Well, his first role was in, um, I believe, was Boogie Nights. And, uh, and he, I think Thomas Jane, he's like a movie star, um, a character actor trapped in movie star's body and face. He's, you know, so, so handsome and stuff. So handsome. And uh, he did, he did a really terrific job. But if you look at Boogie Nights, that's one of his best performances. Oh, I have to go back. I haven't seen Boogie Nights. I have probably way before I should have seen yeah, Boogie Nights. Yeah, I definitely wasn't allowed to watch Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> I had a teen, I had a, an older sister, so I got access to a lot of stuff that I should not. <laughs> but, it, but you know who's the funniest actor to me? Michael Rappaport. Because yeah. just seeing him now, he comments all over the place online. You're like, Michael, like he he's not that way in real life that he is in the movie. He's so nerdy in the movie, yeah. you know, in this like lovely geek. And he's kind of loud in real life. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to say that. <laughs> um I want to know, I want to know, what do I want to know? Um, for for Deep Blue Sea, what, what would you say was the proudest moment after all the work, after shooting, after writing, after it came out? 20 years looking back at it, what's the proudest thing about Deep Blue Sea for you? I think I gave you three. The one obvious one is Samuel Jackson being put in the thing. Um, all you have to do is say Deep Blue Sea, and if you look at all puzzles, say Samuel Jackson, and then just, you just sort of um, mime him being sucked into the yeah. <laughs> ocean. People, people, you know, throughout the world recognize that that image and really like it. I also think with Stellan Skarsgård, that whole sequence of him ending up being killed and, and going right into Aquatica, 
Uh, I just think it was a real horror, really good horror movie sequence. Was that scripted? Where oh, yeah. you, the shark tosses him into the window? Yeah, all that kind of stuff is scripted. You also go through it with Rennie, and what he likes to do is if, um, if for example, we decide in the room that we should want this door to, cl- to open slowly because the shark is fishing it, he'll want it to be written really precise. So then it goes to the storyboarders, artist who makes it really precise, and Rennie's most happy when and what we're seeing on the screen matches the storyboards. Awesome. Yeah, he seems very, very technical. I like it. And my final one I would say would be when LL Kuje is reciting the recipe. He's talking to the video camera, which I always, you know, which was one of the first things that was pitched. And the idea of that was a way to get put it more um, relatable and really into the guy. And then it has a twist even on the scene of and then doing a joke out of it. I love, I actually referred to that scene when I'm making my omelets. Because, you know, he says, the perfect omelet is made with two eggs, not three. And amateurs use milk for density. This is a mistake. And I'm always thinking that when I'm making my omelet. I'm like, you need two eggs and no milk. Elo said, there's no milk in omelets. Um, it's a real, and he's, that twist is so actor 101. It's so good. How he shifts at the end from very serious. Like, this is my legacy. And then we're going to talk about omelets. I love, he was, that's a great monologue. He's flawless in that. And yeah. that was a great scene. Everything was a great scene. I particularly like Homegirl who strips down to her skinnies and electrocutes the shark. That's so smart. That's things. That's why I won't survive because I can't think like that. I'll tell you about that. You want to try to please a whole bunch of different audiences. And so that scene, I wanted to please the 12-year-old boys in the audience. <laughs> so I thought about how would I get Saffron Burles to be as naked as I could get it to be. And... Uh, then he came up with this crazy idea of stepping on the on the wetsuits that supposedly would protect her from being right. Like, is, that a, is that real? Which is, which is totally absurd. Don't try across. that, guys. Don't try that. But when they did that early screening of the movie, I'm watching it, and um, this uh, this boy in the audience when she pulls down the zipper goes, "All right." Oh God. Yeah. That's Great. for you. That's what we wanted. That was okay. done just for you. Yeah, I thought she was uh, like MacGyver. I was like, she is. Well, she's a scientist, so she would know better than I would. Because I that wouldn't even cross my mind. I'd be like, this wetsuit. There was I'm a lot of thinking that went into how many ways they could kill a shark. Yeah, and it, what's let's the first one dies from preacher, right? He lights it up on fire. The second one is electrocuted by homegirl, and the last one is again blown the f up by the end of it, and. Uh, they, you guys did that. You, I mean, you can't. They didn't have guns in Aquatica, which I thought was really weird. That was very intentional. The original script was very much like Aliens, that they had right. uh, that they had a lot of weapons and a lot of abilities to do, and there was basically an army squad going in to deal with it. We thought it was important to have them not have any weapons, okay, and just have to do use their ingenuity to defeat these defeat these sharks. And I think that was a really good decision. It's. Sh- you know what? No matter how smart the sharks are, humans are still smarter. And even though the sharks really got them, though, they really rounded them up. It was great because that's what they wanted to do, right? They wanted to be free. They wanted to just go out into the deep blue sea and cause some and fuck some shit up as they deserve. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I love love this film. If you guys haven't seen this film, it's the 20th anniversary. You can rent it, go buy it, do whatever you would like. Wayne, we're we're gonna wrap this up. Is there any last words you have for the 20th anniversary of this legacy film? I think the biggest part of legacy is being in the first episode of oh, Afro Horror. Wow. We love you. 
We love you. Oh, yeah. This is your career peak. You've peaked now. <laughs> it's not getting any better than this. <laughs> no, um, it was an honor and privilege to be able to talk to you guys. You're so excited. And you guys, check out um, our website and our social medias, which you can find in the outro coming up soon. Wayne is going to be working uh, with uh, me at not at Afro Horror, but at the production company that I work for. We're going to do some like screenwriting classes and some really dope stuff. If you also don't know, Rain wrote The Italian Job. So he's really into like high action octane movies. If you if you that's the kind of writer or person that you like to be. Um, he's a dope ass screenwriter. Wayne, before we leave, tell us about your movie that, that you, you mentioned it earlier. You just shot an indie film. And when can we start seeing it? And tell me about that. So it's called Loves Me, Loves Me Not. It's a very adult Comedy, sort of a combination of Sex and the City and Looking for Mr. Goodbar. And uh, and it's uh, going to film festivals right now, just submitted. So it's going to be a while before we hear from them. And I'm very excited. We shot it in 14 days. And uh, it looks it looks really blithe, the, the budget. And I'm really proud of all the people that were involved in it. And it had a lot of people of color, both in front and behind the camera. Yeah, a lot of my friends. Yeah, so awesome. I was really happy. Rashid Stevens produced it with me. Yes. And he's a man of color. And um, so I'm really, I'm really proud of the diversity in, in that movie. Yeah, I'm so stoked for you. And then what's next outside of this? You can keep writing, keep producing. You yeah. directed this one too. Yeah, yeah. I, I directed it too. So look, you're going to keep just keep going, right? That's what you got to do. <laughs> Never gets any easier. Never gets any easier. But just I'm, keep swimming. Yeah, just keep swimming. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here. This was amazing. You're always amazing. Where can the people find you online? I'm actually on Instagram. It's Wayne underscore Powers underscore Filmmaker. Perfect. And that's the best. I, spent, I don't spend too much time behind that's all, all right. the other ones. They just want to drop you some cool like comments about Deep Blue Sea. Oh, yeah. I hope celebrate you celebrate the anniversary with you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that wraps up for Afro Horror. This is our first episode, you guys. So um, we have more coming. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. If you didn't, you can uh, at Kristen on our social <laughs> media. <laughs> um, uh, I give you all that details in the outro coming up. So, Chris, how did the first episode go? It went great. It went great. Yeah. We're getting used to it. We're going to get better at it as it keeps going on. Um, that That's that's it for Deep Blue Sea 20th anniversary episode. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Afro Horror is edited by PJ Vernetti with logo design by Jaron Hempel. All episodes were recorded at Envision Media Space in Burbank, California. You can find us on Twitter at Afro Horror Pod as well as on Instagram and Facebook under at Afro Horror. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Also, check out our website, www.afrohorror.com, for show notes and extra features. No copyright infringement was intended while recording this show.